Hi, this is Pastor Paul Steele from Bethlehem Church in Austin, Minnesota. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And as we open the Bible together, my prayer is that this will be just the right message for this time in your life. May it be a blessing to you in this Advent season. Now, on to the sermon. Today we start our Advent series as we prepare our hearts for the the coming of Jesus. And our sermon text is Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Now, we've been in the Old Testament, just so we remember. We've been in the Old Testament since July. So this 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 is the last... Sermon from the Old Testament, we'll move into the Gospels next week, but uh, I think, personally, in all my years of preaching, this is the longest stretch of time I've been in, uh, in the Old Testament, so it's been, it's been fun and interesting. And uh, so, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. In January of 1988, a 12-year-old boy from South Africa named Martin Pistorius became infected, infected with a mysterious illness which slowly robbed him of his ability to walk, talk, and communicate on any level. <clears throat> Finally, he des- descended into a vegetative state uh, that left his doctors baffled. They had no idea what was going on at all and left his parents in this this uh, time of despair, like, what do you even do here? Uh, His parents, Rodney and Joan, were told by the doctors to take your son home because you don't have very much time left with him. But that wasn't true. Martin, his, his mom, Joan, said, Martin just kept going and going and going. The first two years, uh, Martin was in this coma-like state. He didn't know anything that was going on. But after two years, his mind started to wake up. And so he had no ability over his, his body at all. He couldn't communicate, but he was fully aware of everything that was happening around him. But not even his closest relatives, friends, anybody knew that what was happening. They, they just thought things were the same. And, Matt, and Martin felt trapped and claustrophobic and terrified. Like, like, here he was. He knew what was going on around him, but he couldn't do anything about it. And his lowest point was when his mom was sitting next to him in despair, and she said, I hope you just die. Like, this is, this is where she had all this despair. She couldn't do anything to help her son, and her, she'd come to this point of like, it would be better for his life just to come to an end than to continue on in this way. His father, for the next decade, 
for the next 10 years, would get up early, take his son, take Martin to this special clinic during the day, then after work, he'd come pick him up, take him home, feed him, wash him, put him to bed. That became their routine for a decade. Talk about a hopeless situation for everyone, right? Martin felt trapped and helpless, like I can't do anything to communicate with anybody. His mother was in this despair, like what do you do? And his father decided, right, that, okay, well, the one thing I can do in this situation is to take care of this responsibility. And so he threw his, himself into doing that, doing this routine day after day after day. How would you respond? How would you respond in such a hopeless situation? See, most of us, at one time or another, have experienced life when it's gotten out of our control, when we don't have, when we can't do anything about it. Like, we, we like to think, hey, we have some sort of control over our lives, and then something happens, and we realize just how little control, if any control, we really have over the things that happen to us. Tragedy strikes, our hope goes away, and we are left feeling helpless to do anything about it. So the question I think I want us to think about this morning is this. How can we have hope? How can we have hope when we have a difficult family situation? How can we have hope when we have all these financial pressures bearing down on us? How can we have hope when we have broken relationships in our lives? How can we have hope when we look at the world around us and our focus immediately goes to the moral decay that we perceive as happening in, the, in, in, in our country and in the, in the world around us? How can we have hope when we feel helpless to do anything about the situation, the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Where can we get hope? Where can we find hope? the hope. Where does hope come from? Now, Isaiah was a prophet during a very difficult time in Israel's history. Remember, we talked about Isaiah a a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, Uh, and uh, Isaiah uh, became prophet in Israel at the time King Uzziah. King Uzziah was one of the few good kings in Judah, and he died in 740 BC, and that's when Isaiah had his call to become a prophet. And God is using Isaiah to, remember, warn Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, about what is happening, what is going to happen. That the curse of the covenant 
right? Because when, when God established a covenant with Israel, it came with both blessings and curses, and because Israel has broken the covenant, the, the covenant curses are going to fall upon Israel, and they're going to come. And they start to come in 734 B.C., so six years after Isaiah started his ministry as prophet. And Assyria comes down and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. So between 734 and 732 B.C., Assyria comes. Now, Ahaz is the son of Uzziah. He's the king of Judah. And he's seeing what's happening. And what he decides to do is he, become, he starts to pay tribute to Assyria, which causes taxes, very oppressive taxes, to fall upon the people of Judah. So even though they're not conquered by Assyria, they're under Assyrian control, they're being oppressed just like the northern kingdom is. That's the, that's the landscape we find ourselves when Isaiah makes this prophecy that we're going to read about. So in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the covenant curses coming and falling upon Israel, God does not leave Israel without hope. God does not leave Israel without hope. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, and there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with, the, with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and the people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing up the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warriors and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So here's what's going on. Here's what this prophecy is about, at least the best that I can tell. So <clears throat> Isaiah proclaimed here that in the area that's been the hardest hit by the Assyrians, so Zebulun, Naphtali, those are the, the two northernmost tribes. They would have experienced the Assyrian invasion the first, the longest, the hardest. So in this area that was the hardest hit by the Assyrian invasion, What's going to happen? There's going to be a light that appears. So in the darkness and the despair, there's going to be a light. Now for us, we look at that word light and immediately 
contrasting it with, with, with the darkness, with despair and depression, we, we see the light as hope. It's a synonym for, a synonym for hope. But what we also have to see here, for the ancient people that were hearing this, is that light is a symbol of God's presence. So in this area that's been hit, in this area that has, that has experienced the curse of the covenant, what has happened, or what will happen? God's presence is going to be there. It's going to show up. So whatever else this prophecy is about, it's about God's presence being with Israel. That God hasn't given up on them. That God hasn't abandoned them. And I think this is what we need to hear this morning. Too often, we interpret the bad in our lives as God's abandonment of us. God, where are you? What are you doing? Do you even exist? Do you love me? See, the reality is that God allows us to go through the consequences of sin. He allows us to experience the consequence of our own sin, right? our own stupid mistakes, the broken relationships that happen because we have said something that we shouldn't, we've done something stupid, right? God doesn't immediately come and, and make those things better. He allows us to experience those things. He allows us to experience the consequence of sin on the large scale, right? That evil exists in this world. And just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're immune from it. But that reality doesn't mean that God has left us, that God has abandoned us, that God doesn't love us. God is reminding Israel that in the midst of their darkness, darkest times, in the midst of their despair, there's going to come a light. There's going, his presence is going to be there with them. God is not going to give up on them. He's going to do what is necessary to call them back to himself. And no matter what we are going through this morning, that is not evidence that God is punishing you. That is not evidence that God has abandoned you. That is not evidence that God doesn't love you. And what we need to be on the lookout for is the light of God's presence. Where is God going to show up? What is God going to do for us? And what we see here then is that God, that this, this light of God's presence, it's going to result in victory and overcoming the oppression that is happening to them. Isaiah refers back 500 years before when Gideon, empowered by God, 
throws off the yoke of Midian oppression, right? there's going to become a victory. It's like God is reminding people, reminding Israel through Isaiah, remember, this has happened before. You've been conquered before. Keep, stay hopeful. Remember, I am with you. So who is this light? Who is the light who is going to defeat God's enemies? Well, for the Jews, the fulfillment of this prophecy is King Hezekiah. So Hezekiah, so you have King Uzziah who died when Isaiah becomes prophet. Then Ahaz, who is the son of, of uh, Uzziah, comes to the throne. From Ahaz, Hezekiah is born. And Hezekiah, like his grandfather, is one of the few good kings of Judah. Now, uh, remember, because I've mentioned this, I don't remember in what sermon, but I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, that Hezekiah is the only one of Assyrian's enemies at this time who's mentioned, that they have record of. So Hezekiah, whatever he does, and the, the success he has is great enough for the Assyrians to take note of it and make mention of it. It's Hezekiah who is king of Jerusalem that when the Assyrians come to surround uh, Jerusalem, right, God sends the angel and kills all the Assyrians. That happens under Hezekiah. So there's, for Jews... The fulfillment of this prophecy is in Hezekiah. But when Matthew was writing his gospel in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verses 13, verses 13 through 16, this is what he writes. He, being Jesus, went first to Nazareth then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River and Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. So for Matthew, he is saying, hey, this prophecy isn't referring to Hezekiah. This is a messianic prophecy. And, and the way that the New Testament writers often use the Old Testament is that they'll just quote a little bit of the, of the passage, which should uh, activate in the mind of the reader, especially Jewish readers, the whole prophecy. So even though he just quotes the first part of it, it's activating this whole thing that we're looking at today. So Matthew is saying, 
this light that, uh, that Isaiah promised back, in, back in, in Isaiah chapter 9, this is fulfilled in Jesus. This is revealed in Jesus. And so Isaiah says that this light is a child who is born to us. And this son, what's he going to do? He's going to establish a government or a kingdom. And it's going to rest on his shoulders. That image means that he is going to take the responsibility for people, for this kingdom, on himself. He is the one responsible for whatever happens within this kingdom. He's taking it on himself. And then you have this section of four names. And it was typical that when a king was crowned, when he came to the throne, that he received titles and new names. And that's what's happening here. And oftentimes, those titles, those names, were connected with God or the gods. Because it it was to show that this king was acting as representative of the gods or of God. And so while it's easy for us to, to look back in hindsight and say, oh, see, this prophecy is predicting the divinity of the Messiah, that's not how the original readers would have understood it. These names, these titles were all pointing to the fact that God's presence is going to be with this individual, with the Messiah. And so it starts off with wonderful counselor. This means that this this king, he's going to have wisdom. And remember when we were going through through the Proverbs, where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. So this person, the Messiah, is going to be filled with the wisdom of God. He's going to to rule by the wisdom of God. He doesn't need any other advisors, any other counselors, because God is his advisor. Mighty God. What this means is that he is God's representative on in the kingdom in this world and whatever he does is synonymous with god with what god is doing with god's action so his power his strength all of that is coming through god he is empowered by god Everlasting Father. This means that he is taking on the protection and provision of the citizens on himself. Just like a father would takes on that, that responsibility of providing and of protection. So this king is going to provide for his people. He's going to protect 
his people. And then the last one, uh, the Prince of Peace. His kingdom is going to be that of peace. He's going to usher in peace. And peace means not just that there's an absence of conflict, right? Peace means that there's going to be prosperity and harmony within the kingdom. Prosperity and harmony within the kingdom. And, right, Isaiah points out that this is going to be a legitimate king because he comes from the line of David. And like his ancestor David, this kingdom is going to be known for its justice, for its righteousness, for its peace. This is going to be a kingdom that where you can experience life the way that God originally intended it for, for it to be. Where things are made right, where there's harmony and unity and prosperity, where nobody goes in need for anything. This is what this kingdom looks like. And it comes through this individual. Now, that all sounds wonderful and great, you might be saying, right? And I'm sure it, Isaiah's readers and, and listeners would have responded the same way. Well, this sounds great, but how can we know this is true, right? Anybody can say anything that they want. It doesn't make it true. I love the way the New Living Translation translates it. Because most translations says you can count on it because of the Lord's zeal. But the New Living Translation, oh, let me back there, uh, it says this, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. The passionate commitment of the Lord. How can we know that this is going to happen because of God's passionate commitment. In other words, God is the promise keeper. We can count on him to keep his promises. So if God says he's going to do something, he will do it. He will do it. You can count on it being done. And so you look back in history and remember that God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. You remember the times that God rescued Israel from their enemies and the judges. You remember the times of David and of Solomon. You remember all of that. God has kept his promise. And so for us, on this side, What it means is that because God kept his promise to send the Messiah, we can count on him to keep his promise to send Jesus again. That's what Advent is all about. This Advent season, I want you to remember this. We are hopeful about the second coming of Jesus because God kept his promise to send the Messiah because we know Jesus lived and that he died and he rose again, that God kept his promise, 
even in all the darkness and, and hopelessness we might face in this life, we keep on holding on to hope because we are confident that Jesus will return and make everything right. Remember Martin? He remained trapped in a frozen body. He said, I knew who I was and where I was, and I understood I'd been robbed of a real life. But suddenly, after more than a decade of imprisonment within his own body, Martin began once again to feel his members, feel his fingers and his arms and his legs come to life again. Slowly and painstakingly, movement followed, and then came rigorous rehabilitation. In his late 20s, he learned to use a computer to speak, and after that, he got a government job. Then he graduated from college with a degree in computer science and started his own web design company and married his wife, Joanna, in 2008. The couple have a son named Sebastian and live in the UK. This reminds us how no matter how hopeless the situation might seem, there is hope. Uh, Martin said this, Treat everyone with kindness, dignity, compassion, and respect, irrespective of whether you think you can un- they can understand or not. Never underestimate the power of the mind, the importance of love and faith, and keep on dreaming. Now, I have no idea the faith story of Martin, whether he believes in God, follows Jesus, or what. But I do know that when we are in hopeless situations, we need a spark of hope. We need something that will propel us forward to keep, moving, to keep us moving forward, which is why love and faith are crucial. But not just love and and faith in a generic sense, but a love and faith directed towards God. Remember in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what does Paul end that passage with? And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But if we're going to have hope, we also need faith and love. We need faith and love. But that faith and love needs to be directed in the right direction. Needs to be directed towards God. The one whose passionate commitment will make all these things come to pass. The one that we can totally and truly count on. That's going to make all the difference. So here's our bottom line this morning. The future is not hopeless because we trust in the God who keeps his promises. The future is not hopeless because we trust in the God who keeps his promises. No matter how dark things might be, God is the light at the end of the tunnel. His presence is there with us, and so we keep on holding on, trusting that sooner or later, He will make everything right. He will restore creation to what it's supposed to be. So our challenge this morning is to memorize 
Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. I read this earlier. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God is not going to waste our troubles, our pain, our trials. But we need to hold on to hope in him and what he has promised to us. Hold on to that hope in the one who has promised the one who keeps his promises. Advent is the season where we reflect on the first coming of Jesus as a way to prepare our hearts for his return. And even if your life might be filled with darkness, I, I hope that you will be encouraged because you remember that we have hope because God keeps his promises, because God kept his promise to send the Messiah the first time, we can be confident that Jesus will return and make everything right. May God continue to bless you.